1: The Brexit debate in the UK has been so all-consuming and filled with so much misinformation that many Brits, on both sides of the argument tend to overlook some of the challenges facing the European Union itself. Looked at in broad terms, it has been an astonishingly successful political project, having delivered 70 years of peace and prosperity. But what lies ahead? What issues does it need to tackle to maintain that kind of success? Well, Luke van Middelaar is a Dutch historian, a professor of EU law at Leiden University, and someone who has worked at the heart of the EU institutions themselves. So welcome to you, Professor. Hello, nice to be on the show. Thank you. And just, 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 just to give us your background, what role actually did you have in the European Union?
2: Well, I was uh, the speechwriter to one of the presidents in the EU system, to the president of the European Council, that is the summits, the EU summits. And this was mostly in the years 2010 until 2014, the years of the Euro crisis, huh, when the Eurozone almost collapsed and when the likes of Merkel and Sarkozy and Berlusconi and Papandreou were gathering in Brussels in late night summits to, as they put it, save the Euro. And, and my boss was the man chairing those meetings, Herman van Brompuy, and I was his speechwriter and therefore close advisor because, as you know, uh, as a man of literature yourself, uh, words are paramount quality in, in politics.
1: And it, it gave you a great sort of vantage point, didn't it, to see what
2: was going on and what the challenges were? Yeah, I mean, these these were uh, incredibly uh, exciting, almost two too exciting uh, years, and it it was uh, uh, really uh, a great spot to to watch how the EU was was dealing with that first financial crisis engulfing it, and I was there long enough to also see the start of uh, what is now the Ukraine war uh, back in 20. 20- 1415 annexation of of crimea uh, which we'll remember and i suppose we will come back maybe later uh, in the show to more recent and much more dramatic turn of of that event with the war in ukraine today but but some of the early glimpses uh i've been uh watching as well and and have tried to to make sense of later as well in my more academic or let's say yeah. So, well, yeah.
1: Exactly. We will come back to it because you, you know, you look at what happened in Crimea and the EU's response to it, and then compare that with what's happening now. So, uh, well, I should say your book is Alarums and Excursions, which is, uh, I think, a Shakespearean term. It is uh, improvising politics on the European stage. And one, just the first big point you make is that the main, the big powers in the EU all had different reasons for wanting it to happen. Uh, so perhaps you could run through that. Why do the French want it? The Germans, the Belgians, the Spanish, the Polish?
2: Well, yeah, running through them, the French realised after the Second World War that France on its own would no longer uh, have a sway among the lights of uh, the United States and the Soviet Union, as as Russia was was then called. And the Gaul French president realised that if He could bring along a number of other continental nations to work together with France and become Europe. France could continue to exist. For Germany, it was totally different in that same era. For Germany, Europe was a path of salvation a path to gain back a place in the concert of civilized European nations, to come out of the corner, basically, if you want, as, as a pariah state, which it was in 1945, and it, I guess it brilliantly succeeded. And then, I mean, many other nations all have their own regions. For the Belgians, Europe was a chance to have a more peaceful environment. For the Dutch, as for the British, it was um, above all perhaps a trading operation for Spaniards at the return to Europe was really belonging again to a club of democracies As Spain uh, joined the then uh, economic community in, in 1986. In a similar manner Poland and, and many other Central and Eastern European nations joined Europe, joined the European Union also after their experience with, with communism and, and with these dictatorships so this means that Basically, for for all societies and, and public opinions, uh, Europe works as a different, almost projection screen of, of aspirations, desires, and, 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 and fears. What you've just
1: described really helps
2: explain some of the tensions
1: that have been in Europe, because, you know, French rebirth, Germany, let's say redemption, Spain, democracy, they're all different, and that's bound to lead to tensions. But if you take All those factors together, all those motivations together, they're sort of political, national political. Yet you you contrast that with another aspect of the EU, which is as a very powerful bloc, you know, and and, and whether it is trying to assert itself as one bloc
2: in the world. Yes, but that is only taking place over time, I would say. If you allow it, there would be one intermediate step, uh, which helps us to explain also the difficulty and, and the challenge of Europeans to become one block, And that is to come together and bridge all these political differences and passion which has led to uh, nationalism and wars, etc. For a very long time, Europeans believed in the rules, in rulemaking and the building of the internal market. But this rulemaking worked also to take the politics out of politics to depoliticize all these passions and and different historical experiences which which we just uh, described and 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 that was really very smart move of the eu founders back in the 1950s and it has delivered as you earlier said owen let's say the single market and uh, prosperity that came with it but it also resulted in the number of, of handicaps. And, and, and these are visible uh, these days where the European Union and European nations jointly indeed want also to act together uh, as a union. And rulemaking is something for which you really can take time. I mean, uh, there's these classic cocktail party stories about EU cucumber regulation or or, or, or stories like that. Ridiculous uh, red tape, et cetera. But rulemaking uh, has as a quality that it, that, it takes, that it takes a lot of time, uh, that it, it takes time. The experience of Brexit has shown also how difficult almost it is to unravel that fabric of economic interdependence.
1: Okay, so just to explain the Brexit point you're making, all the rules that Britain signed up to over you know, the period of its membership of the EU are now, you know, being contested and subject to uh, being unravelled, and it's very, very tricky. And uh, the British system is is trying to cope with that now. But I just before before we get on to, you know, how you think the future should be of the EU and how it should change, just just learn a bit more about this rulemaking because one of the points you make is that. That bit of it, the rulemaking, which means trading arrangements and all this very detailed policy on whether it's cucumbers or whatever, it can only work because it was depoliticized. And and the EU was basically an elite bureaucratic organisation that could do this.
2: Exactly. And that is precisely what has, has changed in the past, I would say, 15 years. We could take the financial crisis of 2008 as a, as a kind of uh, beginning of, of, of a new era where uh, European politics becomes much more visibly political and where EU decisions have an impact on, on people's daily lives. Uh, the Euro crisis is, is, I guess, a very a good and intelligent example in the, to the extent that uh, to save the currency from collapsing or to save certain national uh, economies like that of Greece, uh, Portugal, Ireland, very painful decision to been taken, austerity measures and and, so Europe was front page news. People were protesting uh, in the streets of uh, Madrid or Athens or, or, or Dublin. Were voting in national elections to get rid of their own national politicians. So Europe really became a salient issue. It 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 divided uh, people, and it was it could no longer this this type of decision where, well, let's say people's jobs and and, and pensions and 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 uh, where uh, at stake could no longer be depoliticized and in a way that was only the beginning because in the um, migration crisis uh, and this refers let's say to the year in particular 2015-16 when more than 1 million refugees in particular from Syria uh, and uh, Afghanistan and, and the wider uh, Middle East region uh, came into Europe via Greece mainly when thousands were drowning on the, on the Mediterranean and, and, and when um, the asylum system in Europe which is uh, overall very welcoming and charitable almost collapsed under the pressure of these events this also led to a very well passionate uh, divisions between the EU member states but also within societies between those who wanted to open borders to welcome more refugees and those who wanted to close borders new political parties um, made their fame on that, like in 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 Germany, the, the nationalist uh, right of the AfD uh, was really a party born on the effects of the euro crisis and the uh, migration crisis, and therefore changing the political landscape. So here we are really miles away, uh, and dozens of miles away from the world of uh, where in which Europe was was just uh, as we just said uh boring cucumber uh, regulation stuff. It was really the stuff of of passion and and debates about identities, sovereignty, even religion uh, in the migration crisis.
1: It's interesting you put it like that, because I mean, I can see that new issues have come up, let's say migration, and political parties have taken very strong positions on those issues. But actually, has the EU really become more politicized? Because its institutions remain... Much the same, don't they? And the European Parliament is not really where these things are debated.
2: No, uh, you're right. You're right to point that out. So there's a kind of disconnect between the DNA of of the, the core EU institutions and and the political passion which uh, was expressed in the streets. And indeed, let's say uh, citizens and voters in 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 Greece, uh, they expressed themselves on the streets of Athens, huh? and they did not so easily find. Uh, the European Parliament, which has a seat in Strasbourg, France, and, and in Brussels, to for their uh, demonstrations. That's why there is another place in European decision making, a place in European politics, and a place which I know well, which we discussed earlier, at the European Council, the EU summits of national leaders, have become focal points of crisis politics and focal points of the visibility of the decision making. These summits are really media spectacles, which uh, attract uh, a lot of press, which are story machines, uh, because, well, uh, today it is uh, Prime Minister Draghi of Italy, who is still there, Schultz of Germany, Macron of France, Morawiecki of, of Poland, etc. They they lock horns, so to say, on the issues of today, and, and today it would be Russia, and, and they make very visible, therefore, to their home electorates, that EU politics is also their own politics. It's not just something uh, between Brussels politicians in the Commission and the Parliament, but it is connected to their own national democratic political system, their governments to some extent, their parliaments, and uh, and that is one way to circumvent uh, the issue, which you rightly point out, Owen, which is that the institutions in Brussels are are not. So closely connected to 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 the passions uh, and interests even of of uh, of citizens. So there is a division of labor there, and which no doubt will will change over time. But um, for now, it is what it is.
1: So I wonder what your attitude is then to to the parliament, because it, it is often said that the EU should be the, the officials in the EU and the bureaucracy should be held more accountable, and the obvious body to do that is the European Parliament. But, you know, while it's possible for leaders to meet in summits and thrash out a deal, I just wonder if some of these decisions were actually devolved or taken by the European Parliament, whether you'd ever get anywhere, because there could be really open, bitter division in that Parliament, couldn't there?
2: Well, maybe less than you would think from afar. There is more division in the Parliament than in the past. It used to be a very consensual parliament on some of the key issues, and in particular on the issue of European integration itself, uh, where the the large body of, of the parliament, historically, centre-right and centre-left and and beyond, is in favour of what they call more Europe, in favour of uh, European integration. And it has only been uh, since 10, 15 years that you have more dissenting voices like UKIP from uh, from the UK or like party of of Marine Le Pen being against uh, European integration. But I think it also helps to see the various roles, the national parliaments in the plural and the European parliament in the singular play in this space. In a way the European parliament has a say, and it is a very powerful parliament, but it is powerful in particular for the regulatory part of the EU for internal market and, and, and those matters where a lot of money is at stake for a good reason in Brussels. There are, according to some, even more lobbyists active than than than, than in Washington because it is influencing the legislation is a real stake. But on the other hand, if you look at it from the perspective of individual citizens, let's say in Portugal, voting for uh, European elections, it is, or at least it was, not so clear to what extent these are methods which touch their daily lives. Because... The division of labor between what is done centrally by the eu and and by the member states. Uh, issues like education, uh, public health, uh, transport, national defence and security are competences of uh, the national government. So let's say these are done and dealt with uh, nationally in in Lisbon, Madrid. But this has changed, and and one interesting phenomenon, I mean, the last uh, EU-wide, let's say, almost continental uh, European elections were back in 2019. But then actually, for the first time ever, turnout went really up. And I think it's very important to look at any political system, be it national or one as in the UK, as as always in flux. I mean, uh, relationships are never uh, fixed in the 2024 elections because in the EU it's a five-year affair. I would predict that turnout again I would go up because also in the most recent years with the COVID a crisis where the European Union played a very important role and in the Ukraine war, uh, which we are watching today and where issues of gas and energy and the solidarity between, between member states who will be willing to help other member states uh, which are more reliant on, on Russian gas and others, all, all these issues make themselves felt. And, and there is such a thing as a European public sphere emerging at moments of events which affect all Europeans. And and that is an ongoing phenomenon, uh, deepening from, from one set of events or one crisis, if you want, to another. You mentioned there that you think
1: turnout for the reasons you've just given may go up just just give us a sense actually of where turnout is i don't know is there an average figure across all eu members as to what sort of percentages of voting in these elections for the european union
2: yeah last time it was around 50 percent across the eu up from 40 percent across the eu back in 2014 so really an upward trend and The figures are are really different from one place to another. Uh, In Eastern Europe, uh, turnout has historically been very low, sometimes not even above 25% in some member states. There's also countries like Luxembourg and uh, Belgium where they have obligatory voting. So it would typically be above uh, 85, 90. And uh, to take France and Germany, I think these are close to the figures I just mentioned, around around fifty percent or, or just above uh, fifty. But I'm now speaking on top of my head; these elections are three years ago, and I'm not a poll. Yeah, roughly, a- roughly, yeah, that's fine. So, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so another distinction you make is that the EU must move from making rules. We've talked about that to responding to events, and that that is important you think to make the eu an effective global power so can you describe what you mean by reacting to events
2: well what i mean is that the type of challenges uh, europeans are faced with have been a whole number of of crisis situations that is to say of an unexpected turn of events if we go back to the issue of uh, the euro crisis It was not supposed to happen that a modern industrial country like Greece would go bankrupt or would risk going bankrupt. It was simply not supposed to happen. So nothing had been foreseen in the EU treaties, which are almost sacrosanct here in Brussels, to deal with such a situation. And therefore, leaders had to improvise. There was no playbook to, to, to go by. They had to make up their responses as they went along. And they did, huh? um, there have been other such situations. We mentioned migration, the Russia war this year, where the EU collectively, again, crossed a number of uh, red lines and took a number of unprecedented decisions like that of arming or, or at least financing the arms for Ukraine to help it's the country fight of the Russian invasion and for the European Union historically a peace project as we discussed this was really at least in the self-perception of eu leaders the crossing of rubicon to to go to that step and to deliver arms to a neighboring country at war but in all these situations of sudden disruptions and crisis the old rulemaking qualities which are able to build consensus to be patient and cautious and to bring everybody around the table. These do not work when you have, let's say, 72 hours, as was the case in a famous weekend in May 2010, to save the Euro from bankruptcy and and all of the EU from financial Armageddon. When it was a matter of uh, last minute phone calls and summit meetings, and commission proposals and central bankers getting their act together all in the space of one weekend to uh, find 500 billion euros. So there you're not in the sphere of the rulemaking where really uh, it can take up to five or seven years uh, for a certain proposal to end up in the official rulebook, but you're in, in the sphere of political decisions which will be more divisive which therefore also require to some extent a different type of legitimacy because they're more political. They need to also to be, in my view at least, had to be embodied in a different manner. Some of the regulatory stuff, you can say, well, this is just the experts say, or there's consensus about it, or it's just uh, the right way to do things. But when we talk about matters of war and peace as now with Ukraine. When you talk about issues of asylum, borders, migration, or as we said, issues of solidarity uh, in the financial sphere, there are clear political choices. And there you no longer get away with the bureaucratic, technocratic approach. And these decisions therefore require, in my view, the, the involvement personal involvement, almost embodiment of these decisions by by national leaders. And that is something which the EU has had to learn, but it has. If you try to understand the European Union, how it works today in 2022, to how things were in 2002 or 2007, it's really two different animals, I would think.
1: I wondered actually if you think that uh, Brexit, with the UK leaving the European Union has, has made it easier for the rest of Europe to react to particularly foreign policy challenges because, you know, Britain quite often had a, a very pro-American view which was slightly at odds with the rest of Europe and that's no longer a factor that has to be taken into account when trying to find consensus.
2: Well, I think what, what you say is especially true, maybe a bit less for foreign policy decisions, uh, but certainly true for for uh, economic and, and, and financial decisions. And for instance the way the european union has dealt with uh, with the covid crisis two years ago uh, when it went through a very difficult moment in february march april 2020 uh, when globally of course there was a, fi- a fight for medical material face masks and also among eu member states there was a lot of recommendations all uh, of course wanted first and foremost, to protect their own citizens. There was a lack of solidarity with some countries which were hit hardest early on, like Italy in particular and and Spain. And some people were already predicting the end of of Europe. The the chorus of doomsayers uh, was, again, uh, raising its, its voice. In that moment, it was... And I was surprised myself because... But it was really helpful, one could say, that the UK was no longer member because there was a very forceful economic response uh, in a show of financial solidarity on an unprecedented scale was decided in the summer of 2020 with uh, let's say corona uh, rescue or recovery funds to a volume of uh, 750 billion euros for the whole of the eu but especially for the countries which were hit hardest and that could never have happened at least not in the same way and with the same speed had the UK still been a member of the EU and thanks to Brexit, was better equipped to deal with it in a forceful manner.
0: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus and keto. These are two minute meals, Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Let's move on to another very important area for the EU and uh, some would say a great threat to the EU, and that is this principle which you spell out very clearly in the in your book that you know it is a fundamental principle of the EU that member states no member state takes on the financial obligations of another member state and and that was challenged by the greek case where you know greek suffered this you know, huge financial problems and and yet and still uh, is suffering because the rest of the eu won't bail it out to the degree that it, it, it wants to be bailed out and you know it could become a, a big issue in the future with other countries running out of funds so how big an issue is that? Is it going to change? Will Europe eventually have to act as one economy where financial obligations are shared?
2: Well, this step by step is what we are seeing and what is happening. During the Greek crisis back in 2010, and it lasted a bit longer, but, but some form of risk sharing was uh, put into practice. There were rescue funds made available for Greece and also the very powerful European Central Bank, the one big institution which we have not mentioned so far in this conversation, the, the bank in Frankfurt, also intervened uh, to calm the markets by uh, buying uh, treasury bonds from, in particular, southern European uh, states. And that is therefore also a way, maybe an invisible way, but of of, of risk, risk sharing. Back at the time, there were many critics who, who were saying all this was 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 not enough, and they were probably right because it took a long time uh, for that crisis to calm. But some of the lessons have been learned during the COVID crisis, which we uh, were just discussing. Uh, so 10 years later, Germany, under the leadership of Chancellor Merkel, took a number of steps which were inconceivable at the height of the euro crisis. And um, this corona uh, recovery package, which I, I just mentioned, comes pretty close to something like Europe bonds, that is to say common uh, treasury bonds for specific projects on behalf of the EU and backed therefore by the EU institutions. So there there is more financial uh, risk sharing and one of the debates for the future will be to decide whether this Corona Recovery Fund, which in the local parlance is called Next Generation EU, will be a one-off operation an exceptional answer to an exceptional situation because of the human suffering of of the pandemic or whether it will be a precedent for similar ways of of raising money for common projects and chances that it is a precedent are pretty high and already in the current crisis uh, around energy and and gas and the effects of the war on on European economies and societies uh, people are talking about about doing the same kind of operation so it is not like in the us where you have this one single hamiltonian moment where uh, the center the federal state takes up the depths of uh, the constituent parts of the individual states in the eu there is a different use being made of the factor of time there is more patience perhaps but it is more uh, step by step going in that direction, knowing that there is a number of uh, constraints and concerns. That of course, yes, uh, risk sharing is a sign of solidarity, but there is also there are worries and including legitimate worries about what economists call a moral hazard. That is to say that uh, if all risk is taken away, it is it is not exactly an incentive to prudent behavior. So so there will. Balances will have to be found, but overall, I think the trend is clear in every single crisis and disruption, be it of a financial or other nature, you see more public debate. You see more, you see calls also in, in today's situation for uh, solidarity. And you see each time uh, thickening almost of uh, of that European public sphere, which we discussed. and. uh, translating that into political decisions.
1: Well, Greece was a a big challenge and Covid was a big challenge. But uh, I think if you speak to opponents of the European Union, people who hope it will fail, most of them are pinning their hopes on Italy and the idea that Italy's economy is so dysfunctional and so indebted that that could pose a real threat, an existential threat to the European Union if uh, confidence in the Italian economy ran out. Do you see that as a a potentially very dangerous issue for the EU?
2: People tend, and especially in, in, in the US, I would think people tend, observers tend to underestimate the political forces that hold the project together. Earlier, we spoke about economic interdependence and and the fact how costly the unravelling and how impractical the unravelling is of all these interests which have been woven together in in a period of, of 50, 60, 70 years in the case of Italy, which was a founding member state. But there is also beyond the economic interest, there's the political investment that core countries, France germany and others have done in this project and they do not want this project to fail. and italy is part of what europe means to itself and, and to the world so the other member states and i'm not talking about italians themselves they will not so easily let italy fail. it and i think that in a crisis, an economic crisis of that nature. It will be tough. There will again be summits of the last chance, moments of truth, such as those which I experienced 10 years ago when working for Hermann Van Rompuy. But there will be a political will mobilized, perhaps too late, but will be mobilized, uh, nevertheless, to, to make sure Uh, that the European Union as a whole, including Italy, comes out of that challenge again.
1: We said we'd talk about Ukraine, and you've mentioned it a few times. But I I think the most useful question to ask you about it, because you were there when Crimea happened, and you saw the EU response. And as a close observer of Europe, you've seen how they've reacted to these more recent events and the invasion of the rest of Ukraine. How has that reaction and capacity to react changed in, in the period uh, between 2014 and this year?
2: Well, in 2014, the reaction to the Crimea invasion was was relatively uh, moderate, sub, subdued in a way. Huh? There were sanctions, but overall, I think it is fair to say uh, that the uh, annexation of, of Crimea was not legally, but politically somehow accepted and here now in 2022 of course the situation is completely uh, different because what putin has done uh, to ukraine uh, was considered unimaginable: uh, inimaginable trying to occupy the country decapitate leadership killing and and, and, and shooting etc and the response has been very forceful and again that has also been a response of public opinions of the media, let's say, uh, of a very overall, I'm talking there, of course, there are always uh, minorities, but of kind of solidarity with the victim of that aggression, solidarity with Ukraine. And the response has been uh, rather impressive in terms of not only sanctions, sanctioning Putin's regime, but also supporting Ukraine with weapons, as we mentioned, financially as well, and also with... The perspective of EU membership, which is something the Ukrainians back in 2013, 2014, the episode uh, which ended in that Crimea annexation, if you remember, that started not uh, because of any NATO enlargement prospects, which of course are also part of the debate, but because a large part of the Ukrainian population wanted to become closer to the European Union. But this time around, the the response has been more united. Of course, there are differences, and we we started with that in different historical experiences of of various states in Europe uh, vis-à-vis the union, and it's the same in their historical experiences uh, vis-à-vis Russia. Huh? Of course, it's different uh, to look at Russia when you are in Poland next door, or when you're in Spain or Portugal, or in Ireland behind. Safely behind some some mountains or or, or 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 behind some seas. Nevertheless, a common response uh, have been found. Of course, one can always look at certain cracks, and in particular, the position of Hungary is very worrying here. Uh, Hungarian Prime Minister Orbán is is openly still flirting flirting with Putin and and his idea of uh, a mixture between democracy and autocracy. Let's say, but. If we zoom out a little bit, we see that the European Union as a bloc has responded to that act of Russian aggression, has been united. So there is a kind of European response because I think that, again, not just governments, but also public opinions, really feel that something is broken there and that this is a European war on European soil between two, Broader nations, in a way, Russia and Ukraine, and which which matters uh, to all of us is, is part of a of a common experience. Now, uh, will that unity come under pressure with a maybe very hot autumn and a very cold winter in terms of uh, gas shortages ahead? Uh, no doubt, but I think it is interesting to observe a kind of joint. A response with all the varieties but overall uh, from the same kind of emotion that something like this act of aggression war is not supposed to happen we cannot let it happen and we are also we Europeans are ready to pay a price and I think that is a result not only of the act of aggression of Russia but also building on that series of experiences of these crisis years where Europeans have discovered that they do not only share some rulemaking institutions in the market, but they share a a currency, they share borders, they share neighbors, and at the end, they share a destiny. And that will be, for the years ahead for me, the big question, whether the European Union member states can find a more robust way to deal with all this turmoil of which Russia is, is, is the latest example, to be more credible geopolitical actors and really emancipate themselves from this somewhat naive rulemaking machinery, which for very good reasons they designed, designed after the Second World War and to become a, a more convincing collective actor, on the world stage, I think that will be the uh, key questions for the period ahead, looking at 2024, the US elections, looking at what is happening uh, in China, in Russia, and so on.
1: Well, well, let me uh, put you another challenge the EU faces. I mean, you mentioned Orban in Hungary. And in in a way, Orban doesn't matter in as as much as Hungary is a relatively small economy. And if if Hungary left, Hungary would leave. And I'm sure there'd be much regret in Europe, but it's not an existential issue. But he has raised a problem which does go to the heart of Europe, which is, is EU law supreme? And, you know, there are now many more debates about that than there have been in the past. And I wonder if you think that does represent a genuine threat to the EU.
2: Just like in the, in, in the United States and, and the role of the Supreme Court, in the same way in the European Union, which also has its own highest court, which sits in, in Luxembourg, there's always a tension between national law or state law as it would be in the US and European law or federal law. And it is true that this tension has become more acute in the case of uh, the European Union with with Hungary, which flouts the very rules and principles of the rule of law and and democracy. To some extent, the situation in Poland is just as worrisome, except Poland today is politically in a different situation because it's such a staunch supporter of of Ukraine. It takes refugees from Ukraine. So we now look a little bit more uh, to Hungary also for the reason because Viktor Orban has already been in power for, for longer than his Polish counterparts and the undermining of democratic institutions has, has gone much much farther. I think most experts would no longer consider Hungary a function in democracy and that is very worrying but there is not so much that you can do about that only by the law. And the EU is not in a state where you would—I'm now going to push the argument a little bit—but where you would send in the troops to 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 to, to change constitutions. So we're, we're talking about something in between the law and and, and 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 military type of answers. So that is forms of pressure, political pressure, and hoping that at some point a democratic opposition will be able to organize itself and to make sure that the Hungarian voters get rid of Orbán themselves. Now, he has made that very difficult, and that is one important difference, another difference between Hungary and Poland, where I think chances that civil society will organize itself and that the opposition could uh, win and vote the also authoritarian peace government in Warsaw out of office are higher. Uh, But I would hesitate to look for the solution or of this issue only in terms of the law and 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 legal answers because the relationship between the european union and its member states and that is a difference with the united states which is clearly a single political entity on the world stage is is not quite the same the european union is a union of states which has strengthened over time but which at this point in time has not Uh, the force to bring such a situation uh, to an end and indeed when things get even worse I think at some point the discussion uh, will be started about um, expulsing Hungary from the club but that that will be very difficult politically and and for other reasons too but it, it, it might come to that at some point
1: Now, you say in the book a number of times, and this is just my final question to you now, you say a number of times that the EU is not heading towards the United States of Europe. I'm not sure whether you think that's desirable or not, that it would be better if it was a United States of Europe. But, you know, just as a general thought looking ahead, you've answered every challenge I've raised to the future of the EU with sort of arguments suggesting it will work out. Do, Do you think the EU will exist in 50 years, and if things continue towards integration, won't it look like a United States of Europe if it's still there in 50 years?
2: Well, my answer is, and you're right to point it out, I've I've been, let's say, a little bit pragmatic and looking at the sometimes unexpected forces holding the block together, rather than only focusing as the press sometimes does at the obviously also existing uh, forces that, that tear that union apart. I do think the European Union will still exist in 50 years, and it will have stronger central institutions than it has today. But I do not think for, for reasons of, of history and culture and, and languages that the center will be uh, as strong as it is in the US. And Brussels, so to say, will not be Brussels DC like, like a kind of, of Washington. Because, and this is where we started, the initial experiences of European nations joining, founding, and then joining for others that European Union are so different. And France will never be like Germany. Huh? And the French and the Germans will never understand each other. And... And this is really different from uh, what happened to the states of Virginia and the state of New York between 1776 and, and 1787 and and after that, and and therefore Europe will always be different. It will have stronger uh, central institutions. It will maybe make more sense than it does today to think of it in terms of a federation, and I hope. Well, I will be about 100 from 50 years from now, but I'll be interested to see what it will look at that time.
1: Well, we wish you a long life and uh, hope hope you enjoy more European integration as you as you reach as you get towards your century. Uh, so, thank you very much indeed, uh, Professor middle. It's been absolutely fascinating to 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 get your opinion and your analysis of the EU.
2: It was a pleasure. Thank you. Owen.